I see you favor a 45. Tonight I do. And I keeps one in the chamber in case you ponder it. Nice showpiece you got there. Walther, PPK, 380, double action. Hear them Walters like to jump some. As will you, with one in your elbow. That gun ain't got enough firepower to make my joint useless. It definitely won't stop me from emptying out half my mag. You might not hit me. This range? And this caliber? Even if I miss, I can't miss. I admire a man with confidence. I don't see no sweat in your brow neither, bruh. It's only fitting with this particular episode because I think you already knew when we got to middle ground, you knew I was going to be on one, right? You knew that there was nothing you were going to be able to do to contain me for this episode because finally, the day, the day of truth, the day America has been waiting for has arrived. It's finally here. I, I, I want you to maintain tact and to be <laughs> Have respectful. Have you met me? <laughs> I want you to be respectful. I want you to be respectful, Okay. Because we know that this is like as much as you're salivating, and this was something for a lot of people that are on their rewatch or watching for the first time. This episode is going to be profoundly sad for them <laughs> because, despite your best laid plans, your efforts, this is one of the more beloved characters in the history of the series that we must bid adieu to in this particular episode. Well, it will be special. It will be epic, and I will have a lot to say. <laughs> However. <laughs> That is not the only reason uh, today's episode will be special. Uh, later on, we are going to be joined by one Bill Simmons to discuss probably the, the best scene. Um, it, it wasn't, it's the difference between best and most gratifying. The most gratifying scene is what happened to Stringer for me. The best scene is what precludes that when him and Avon are on the balcony reminiscent of Nino Brown and G Money in the club talking about they ain't going out like Pookie and Blackie or whoever he said on, you know, on the street. Fighting over a $10 bag. That's precisely what happened to them. So that's amazing. Yes. Or or better yet, the follow-up <laughs> scene in New Jack City where Nino Brown is forced to finally deal with the G-Money problem, which leads mm. us to Am I My Brother's Keeper? But first, a uh, couple quick takeaways from you, Van, from this episode before we go through the recap. This episode is very easy to sort of put into a sentence, this is the breaking point. Now, this, in, in season three, the great thing about season three is it's a binge season, right? It's a season where so many things come together in the first part of it, then in the middle part of that season, things start to bend and you know that they're going to break. This is the episode where they break. Obviously, the main thing we're talking about breaking here is the subtext, the thing that's bubbling under the relationship of Avon Barksdale and Stringer Bell. It's not just a divergence of them in terms of their personal friendship. Um, it's not just a divergence in terms of their professional relationship. It's everything all at once. It's a perfect storm of forces pulling them apart. And that's kind of the kinetic energy here uh, that powers this episode, which is one of the the better episodes in the history of the season through to the point to where it gets to at the end. Van, since you said before that season three was your favorite season of The Wire, is this, is this in your opinion, the best episode of season three? 
it's certainly the most impactful for me. Best overall episode, I'd have to do a little mini rewatch to kind of put that back into perspective. But I remember when I was doing the rewatch of this episode specifically for this podcast, this was the one that feels the most eventful. Oh, for sure. It's the one that gives me the most emotion. This is a very emotional episode of The Wire. The Wire has scenes that are emotional almost in every episode, right? But in this one, particularly, there's sort of a a feeling here that this is supposed to be very, very weighty, and it ends up being that way. So I don't know if I would say best, but eventful for sure. Okay. Um, You know, you mentioned about how, like, things are are really... uh, reaching a breaking point in this particular episode. I'd say they reached a broken point is what is how I would put it. Uh, because everything that has been put together has been fractured in some of the most final ways. And I think it, it season three, what was interesting on this rewatch of it is it developed slower than I remembered. Like, I just remember season three being faster. Yeah, much you're like, right. Yeah, much like with season two, I thought that developed slower than I recalled, but it actually developed faster than I remember. And uh, really, it's kind of the last four or five episodes in season three that, to me, uh, kind of get to the foundation and the meat of it. So this is about broken things that cannot be put back together. That was kind of my big takeaway. All right, let's get to the recap. Um, for the detail, they believe they finally got Stringer cornered. Uh, they sold the Parksdale crew pre-wiretap phones, which was ingenious. <laughs> um, and they catch Stringer on the wire discussing uh, drug activity with Shamrock. Um, Daniels also plays the big Joker on Fitz, which then gets them to speed up getting what they need from Stringer's phone. On the political front, Carcetti, he finds out about Hamsterdam from Bureau, who is in full cover your ass mode. Carcetti uh, gets a personal tour of Hamsterdam from Bunny Colvin and sees both the upside and the downside, mostly the good, about what something revolutionary like Hamsterdam can do. Uh, from the street standpoint, Stringer realizes he has been totally had by Clay Davis. Love that scene. I know, I do. Because leave it, you know what? He's so smug when he tells right. him, like, yo dumbass actually thought that you were really mm-hmm. a big-time developer in Baltimore. Nah, you just the latest sucker for Clay Davis. Again, this whole episode is just here for my pure gratification. It was damn near orgasmic. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So Stringer snitches to Colvin about Avon's safe house. Avon snitches to Brother Muzon about Stringer's whereabouts. And a smaller development, um, but probably the most hopeful thing that happened in this episode, Cuddy makes a breakthrough with the kids, in particular, Justin. Now let's get to the moment of truth, Van. <laughs> now let's get to it. We are going to eulogize one Russell ain't shit fuckboy Bell. What y'all niggas want, man? Huh? Money? Is that it? Because if it is, man, I could be a better friend to y'all alive. You still don't get it, do you? Huh? It ain't about your money, bro. Your boy gave you up. That's right. And we ain't had to talk to his ass neither. Well, it seemed like I can't say nothing to change your minds. Well, get on with it, motherfucker. Ding dong, the king is dead. I could not be happier that this is the conclusion. I knew it was coming. 
I know some people, y'all are like, but it's a sad thing. And oh, him and Avon, and they broke up. And blah, blah, blah. Stringer got exactly what he deserved. This is, people don't understand. This is not just about what was right for America, being on the right side of history. This was for D'Angelo. This was for Wallace. This was for Brianna. This was for Avon. This was even for Shamrock, who he always tried to sum with his little superior knowledge of everything. This was for his community college classmates who had to watch this fool, old teacher pithead ass, every week in class. This was for the right side of history. Stringer Bell, dead as a motherfucker. Yes! I understand. <laughs> okay, so look, first of all, let me give the, the counterpoint to that. Russell Stringer Bell, in many ways, like showed that there is no way out of the drug game. Why? Because we, we get sold this fantasy, right? In communities that, listen, you're going to go here, you're going to do all of these terrible, abhorrent things, right? But you're going to do them with a sense of business. You're going to de-emotionalize yourself. You're going to do all this. And then at the end of it, you're going to go start a record label or you're going to go start a real estate development company or you're going to start something. That's what people think. They think, yo, I'm going to hustle for a little while. Then I'm going to start a record label, sign the next Lil Wayne, and then boom, it's legit. Newsflash, that doesn't happen very often, if ever. All right. If ever Stringer's dream of actually finding a legit way in America was pulled down by the dirt that he had to do to get there. You have to thread that needle perfectly if you're Stringer Bell. You can't leave any loose ends. And he had loose ends all over the place. I'm going to be honest with you. Brother Muzan was a loose end. Omar was a loose end. So... It, it ended up that D'Angelo was a loose end. Stringer wasn't skilled enough to tie all the knots that he had to tie in order to get to where he wanted to go. That is the tragedy of Stringer Bell. Not that he wanted to better himself, Jamel. Not that he wanted to take classes <laughs> at the community college. Not that he wanted to start having real estate. Not that he wanted to be something more than what he thought he had to be when he was growing up. Is that he didn't have the required skill to do it. Like Avon said, just wasn't as good as he thought he was. That's the real tragedy with Stringer. But you know what? Kudos to him, even in death, for giving it the old community college try. <laughs> I don't have any problem with that. I don't see why you have such a big deal with him. He was just trying. But it's not just about him trying, though, Van. It's not it, trying to better yourself is just a part of the American life, right? That's that's what we all do. We try to better ourselves. Is that Stringer, as he tried to better himself, used to smugly and arrogantly try to show people how much better he was than everybody else. It's Look, having loose ends is part of the drug game. It's just the way that it works. But the reason he has so many loose ends is because in every room, and even being in a room with developers and somebody like Clay Davis, who is a life time shuckster. He always thought he was the smartest dude in the room. Smartest dudes in the room get got. And so that's why it was hard for me upon, I would say, my second rewatch is when I really started to get it about Stringer Bell. And again, shout out to Bomani Jones because he was on this train from the beginning and he slowly drugged me into this world of being like, I'm telling you, Stringer Bell is not the sympathetic character that people want him to be. And as I watched, I was like, this dude was an elitist like a motherfucker. Disloyal, smug, arrogant, old farmer's market shopping, Brooks Brothers slacks, uh, wearing hair. When, when was he disloyal? Dude, when was he disloyal? 
What he did to D'Angelo? Look, I, the Donetta shit, that shit was, that was crossing what? the line. Wait, that shit oh, was crossing oh, the line. Wait, 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 wait. You're talking about, but, well, first of all, he, she was locked up. I don't think he was as loyal. I, I don't know if he had that much loyalty to D'Angelo. I don't think their relationship was like that. The entire D'Angelo situation was disloyalty in many regards. And like, he was always trying to do things so underhandedly. Look, I understood with Prop Joe. Prop Joe had the best package. He was just trying to make a business deal. But again, the way he often conducted business was somebody who thought he was too smart for his own fucking good, which is why this last episode is so great for me because he saw in every possible way, guess what? You always thought you the smartest motherfucker in the room. People have been scheming on you from the beginning. He needed to learn that lesson. Stringer Bell needed a humbling. Unfortunately, it came with about eight bullets in his chest, but he needed that shit. Do you know what Stringer Bell's biggest mistake in this entire season was? The biggest mistake he made mm. is not having Avon killed. <laughs> I'm, I'm, ser I'm, I'm serious. The, the move that Stringer decided to take against Avon when he decided to do it, effectively neutralizing him, really... He let his emotions get in, in the way of making that decision way before then. Because the reality is that he saw something that Avon couldn't see. It's kind of the way the game works to take your strength and use it as a weakness against you. He saw something that Avon couldn't see. Avon, we're talking about people, really, I love Avon Barsdale. And there's one scene in this particular episode and it's the reason why I love Avon Barksdale so much. And we'll talk about it later. But Stringer, if he really was as unscrupulous as we want to believe he was, and as sort of dastardly or whatever, he should have recognized it was a brick wall with Avon a long time ago. And that trying to play both sides of that, we're, we're going to end up getting him killed. Because at the end of the day, the only way that Brother Muzon and Omar could get to Stringer was through Avon. Avon had to cooperate. So Avon chose his reputation over Stringer at the same time Stringer was choosing his financial future over Avon. It's just that neither guy made the choice in time to save themselves. And so I think Stringer would have been a little bit more of an asshole we could have been going on with The Wire season four, season five singers. We could have been visiting Stringer at the copy shop, but not in West Baltimore, in D.C. I'm talking copy shops in Philly. I'm talking, he, he would have been a mogul. He was about to be the, the new Kinko's. He <laughs> was going to be the new Kinko's, but we just couldn't get there, man, because he didn't go hard enough when he should have. Well, a lot of times in, in people... Through, across like movies and TV shows, uh, the the drug dealer caricatures that are in Stringer's position, you have a, a little bit of empathy for what they have gone through, um, and that there's some part of their character that you know you that causes you to to have some compassion. But I think it was it got to a point where that was sort of impossible for me. And granted, it wasn't like I said, it wasn't just about how he handled D'Angelo, but also you know Wallace. Like that's on Stringer's hands all the way. And those, while I know those are just kind of casualties of the game, if you will, um, and I'm not saying that he should have made another choice, but it's hard to not see him as more villainous as opposed to with Avon. I don't have the same feeling. Like I, between the two of them, Avon was just, he inspired or incurred far more empathy from me than, than Stringer Bell did. And maybe it's because Avon's motives were always clear. He was never somebody trying to pull sleight of hand. 
Strigger Bill was always trying to pull sleight of hand. Also, and so I, also Avon was detached, though. Yeah. So, like, the, the decision to, to ace Wallace would have never been Avon's because Avon didn't know who Wallace was. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so it, would, it would have never been Avon's decision to take action on Wallace because Avon's not close enough to the street, and it was purposefully like that, right? It was, that was like, shit, hell, I don't even know if Stringer before would have, would have known, would have able to pick Wallace out of a lineup as well. So Avon was insulated. He had the sort of plausible deniability of, 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 of distance. You know, he's back in the room, to, but Colin, but Stringer was the man who had to make those decisions. And so, you know, he had, he had to make them, but I say rest in peace, Russell Stringer Bell, you know. <laughs> There's at least one person here on Way Down in the Hole that appreciated your contributions to The Wire over the time that you were there. And just the look on Omar's face, Omar, Omar hated Stringer. The look on Omar's face when he pulled that trigger, Omar hated. Brother Muzan was like, whatever, didn't care. Omar, he was looking at him like he was a piece of trash, like Incurring that type of emotion in people has ended up getting sugar killed. Yeah, I mean, Omar, the the satisfaction that he had in this moment, I mean, realize now it's been three seasons. He's been chasing this guy. He's slipped through his fingers. They had the, the parlay situation. And finally, yeah. uh, especially the way that they did it. See, it was not only gratifying that Omar got to turn the shotgun on him. He, it was gratifying that it was Avon that gave him up, which he made sure to tell him before he smoked him into the seventh level of Hades. Because at, at that point, I think he wanted him to know, like, not only did you not outsmart somebody for once in your life, but how much more uh, awful is it that not your boy not only gave you up, but it's your boy who you think, let's be real, that you're a little bit smarter than. You know, because in this, as they wound down their relationship, I don't think it ever crossed Stringer's mind that Avon could even be capable of putting together some kind of plan that would take him out. He always, he never saw it coming because he didn't think Avon was capable of doing it. I think some of that had to do with how Avon handled D'Angelo and that he knows that he's all about family and he's all, even to his detriment. And I think that Stringer felt like because of that weakness, he could exploit it and exploit their relationship and exploit their friendship. Yeah, I think when when Omar told him that the reason why Stringer stood up straight so he could take the long good night, you know what I mean, is because what Omar was basically trying to say is nobody loves you, right? Like no, no, like nobody loves you. Just to let you know, you're here and you're acting as if you still want to be alive. Like, what can we give you? What can we do for you? Just to let you know, there's really nothing for you to live for. Nobody loves you now. The one guy that you thought that you could get through, because especially coming off the balcony scene, which we're getting ready to talk about, when you feel all of this emotion, because all they talked about in that scene was emotion. Right. Like memories, things that they fondly remember. And Omar really shattered all of those fond, fuzzy memories, all of that connection with one sentence. Your man gave you up. So all of that was for nothing. So really, at this point, you've been outsmarted. You've been completely emasculated. Like, you're standing right here in front of us. We have all of the power. What You're trying to bargain with us for your life. What is your life worth? Your best friend in the world gave you up. What's your life worth? And you know what Stringer answers? Nothing. Go ahead and do it. Nothing else to say. He didn't even get that to finish that sentence, but they lit his ass up. That stopped, <laughs> that stopped the argument. You know what? <laughs> you're right. Dying shit. I got nothing. It's time, it's time to go. Yeah. And they put two in the chest. And, and not only that, though, 
if you think about it, I think Stringer was not only hurt that Avon gave him up, he was also hurt because Avon orchestrated his murder. See, he was just orchestrating for Avon to go to jail, right? He's like, you're going to be alive, but you're going to have to do some time because I don't want it to be that bad, right? So he, in Stringer's eyes, he had a little bit of compassion in trying to eliminate him from the picture. Avon was like, tell you what, bro, <laughs> they're going to have to, uh, they're going to be singing Mahalia Jackson at your funeral. That's That's how bad things have gotten between them. So it, it was, again, I'm happy. I'm satisfied. I feel like I could go smoke a cigarette right now. Rest in peace, string. <laughs> Rest in peace, now. I can't get too fucked up tonight, man. I got some shit I got to do inside tomorrow. Plus, a fucking Polak. We got work for us, man. I got to pull his coat. If he had anything to do with that Clay Davis bullshit, man, I'm gonna have to cut his money, little faggot. What time y'all meeting? Uh, what time, uh, 12? Uh, I think, why? You, you need me to do something for you? Nah, I'm just seeing where you gonna be at. You need to relax more, man. When time is right, I will. You know I don't take my work too seriously. That's right. It's just business. As I mentioned at the top of this podcast, we are bringing in a special guest to break down maybe the scene of season three. Uh, certainly a man that is no stranger uh, to any of those who frequent Ringer podcasts and just in general, if you're an aware person, one of the foremost wire experts like ourselves, <laughs> Bill Simmons is here to help us break down this awesome balcony scene that took place in this episode. Uh, welcome, Bill. And, um, you know, sorry, I got a little bit excitable about Stringer Bill. Actually, I'm not sorry about that. So thank you for joining us as I continue to shit on the character that is Russell Stringer Bill. <laughs> Your comments were hurtful. <laughs> I know how you feel about him, too. Listen. It's one of those things where first time you watch The Wire, you gravitate to Stringer. He's one of the guys. He's an unbelievable character. He's got the 40-degree speech, I think, in season one. But there, there's this whole bunch of checkpoints that you're just like, I love this guy. I'm into it. You watch it like the third or fourth time. You start picking it apart like every every other uh, thing when you've watched too many times. And you start thinking, why do you do that? Why do you do this? And I think the balcony scene, it's interesting that you think he didn't see this coming. Because I look at the balcony scene, by the time they hug and they do the us motherfuckers thing, I think they know one of them is going to get the other. Because mm -hmm. as soon as he asks, what time is that meeting? And Stringer stumbles and he's like, I, 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 I think it's going to be 12. And the way he's kind of deciding whether he should actually tell Avon when the meeting is or not, because he doesn't trust him. So I think it's done at that point. And I think the difference between these two guys if the roles have been reversed and he gives him what time he's going to have the meeting, but he thinks this might be a possible hit, he probably would have changed the actual meeting and then gone to the site and been a block away and gone to see if anybody else was coming in there. Cause that's what the guys with the biggest street smarts on the show do. They they're playing chess. They're thinking ahead. They're, they're monitoring stuff. And he was missing that piece. And that, that was what Avon said to him. He's like, I, in the, I think episode eight, I bleed red, you bleed green. He was missing that one small piece on the chessboard that he couldn't see stuff like this. And Avon just got him. And I guess that was what led me to the conclusion 
that I'm not sure if Stringer saw it coming. I don't know if he saw a hit coming. Maybe he thinks that Avon's going to try to get him in some way, but does he see a hit coming? I think, Van, don't you think? I think he knew... I think he knew now yeah. it was one or the other after the balcony. It's like one of us is going down. I don't know who it is. Well, he asked him why. When like when when Avon when Avon says what time and where is this going to be, Stringer tells him. Then he says why. And when he says why to him, he goes why you asking? And then Avon goes, I just want to know where you're going to be. Something happens. I have this written down. Like like the stream feel that. I have it written down on the paper. He felt it. He does, because when he hugs, he has that extra look right. on his face Where after the hug, when they do the close-up, and he knows. So I think right. he knew at that moment. I really do. Yeah, well, I guess I'm thinking like you are. Like, if he knew or if he felt like something was off, especially considering throughout most of this time, Stringer has been extraordinarily paranoid about everything, you know? Somebody who is as meticulous as he was about burner phones, about everything else in this operation— this would seem to be a time where he'd be like, you know what? Things haven't been right between me and Avon. Maybe I should change up the location. So I don't know if this is part of his general arrogance or if he just thinks like, nah, I know things haven't been right, but Avon isn't, he isn't enough of an asshole to just kill me, is he? Yeah, but, but here's the thing. Stringer becomes the wire audience at this point. Because mm. when you're watching this show live, normally, especially with the way TV went back then, they're setting up for like a future episode. And that balcony scene is like the big episode that sets up what's coming next. And I remember watching this the first time and be like, oh shit, they're heading towards something. And then within 10 minutes, he was dead. Yeah, and that, there was an abruptness to it that this is why I think this is the best episode of the season. I also think it's probably the most memorable wire episode period because you lose the shock value the more times you rewatch. The first time, it's like, holy shit, they fucking took him out. And to see Omar and Brother Mazone together, the shock value that the first time, the show has never topped that, other than maybe when uh, when Snoop gets killed. It's the Red Wedding episode of The Wire. I remember being on a message board back in the day, because that's what I do. I'm a nerd. I keep trying to tell y'all. And one thing was like, Stringer Bell dead. And there were literally all these messages about it. And people were saying it was a dream sequence. Or, or something was going to... They were there, looking there was, for some conspiracy. This shows you kind of the show. They couldn't see a future of the show without Stringer. Well, think, but think about the context of this, right? This is mid-2000s. You didn't kill off one of the best characters on a show halfway through the show. Right. And that, that became something that I think Game of Thrones did it really well in their first season when they set up Sean Bean as the lead of the show. And it's like, oh, here's the lead. And then it's like, he, he's decapitated <laughs> 10 or 11 episodes in. And that now we're used to it. Now we're used to swerves. I don't, I was not used to it watching this show when it was happening and thinking like, whoa. So now it's like, once he dies, everybody's fair game. You just figure yeah. like, oh man, this is a zero sum game. All Everybody's going to die by the end of this. Well, to give you some insight about why David Simon did it this way is that the fear was that if they continued to keep Stringer Bell alive, considering how well Idris Elba played this role, how he sees this and really became a leading man, particularly in this season, the fear was that the show was going to become about Stringer Bell. And he wanted to tell a much more complete story about Baltimore, about the drug trade police. Like he had other areas he wanted to touch. If you keep Stringer alive the universe is always going to have to go through him and they didn't want mm. that. Um, I'm curious from you, uh, both Bill and Van, what specifically about this balcony scene did you love so much? So for me, 
this is the legacy that starts with Scarface and mm. Manny and Tony turning on each other, which yeah. that that now I don't know. There might have been movies or TV shows before that, just but for me and as you know, I was like thirteen or fourteen when that movie came out. But you're watching Scarface. And Manny and Tony, they're the best, right? It's just they they have all these different great moments. I just love Manny. Manny starts getting attracted to Tony's sister, and it's like, oh no, come on, Manny. This 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 is this ain't gonna end well. Not please gonna, don't do say, not gonna please end don't it. <laughs> please don't do this, Manny. And then it happens. And then when Tony actually kills Manny, it like physically hurts. It, it's like watching a brother turn on another brother. Same thing for New Jack. Um Yep. When that happens, and, and they're basically they're stealing from Scarface. Let's it's be the honest, same it's the same yeah. principle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's kind of it's kind of the more the more modern version of it, and that happens. It was the same thing. The tears streaming down his face, and you're just like, no, he's not gonna. And then he does it, and you just feel it. And I think this is the third in the trilogy of like, ah, oh, they these guys have it. They're not gonna turn on each other. And even in that balcony scene, they're reminiscing about the old days, which I think is a huge part of the scene because. You have to have that because it shows like, yeah, these dudes knew each other since they were like eight. So mm -hmm. I think you have that. And then I think with the last one, if you're doing a Mount Rushmore, probably Walt and Jesse in Breaking Bad yeah. Yeah. when they turn on each other in the same thing. And, and really, that's it. Those are the four times. And it's almost like once a decade when you have these two characters, you're so attached to the relationship and all the ebbs and flows. And then you kind of realize like, oh, shit, this ain't going to last. And that's the balcony scene. Where it's like once and for all, it's like they're not one of these guys is dying, and I don't know who. Also, Tony killed Chris in The Sopranos. Great one, but that but the only thing with that is you knew it it was going to play out that way for four seasons. Yeah, it wasn't surprising. But in the in the grand scheme of that show, when you start your Sopranos rewatch, which I I, I recently did as well, it is almost unthinkable on your rewatch that they're going to go there towards the end of that show, and he, like Chris is going to look up. And Tony is going to be suffocating him as he drowns in the pool of his own blood. It's hard to see. The thing about the balcony scene and the reminiscing that really struck me when I watched it was that this was an eventuality that, that had happened between them. This was going to happen. When they reminisce, Avon is reminiscing about the time that Stringer stole a badminton mm. set, right? Which is the most like Stringer bell shit ever, but go ahead. But he, fu he fucked it up, though. That was right. the best part of the reminiscing. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, he's trying to steal something. And he didn't get it. And Stringer himself is reminiscing, talking about business. Uh, like they both, they are fundamentally different guys. And it's actually the thing that kind of keeps them, their relationship tight is Avon's authority. Avon was such an ironclad authority figure, right? And he was such an alpha number one. It's kind of like Tony and Manny as well. Like they're partners. They're but partners, not really. but not equals. It's like LeBron, LeBron and Anthony Davis. They're partners, but not really. Same thing. <laughs> One guy's going to get the ball when it's time to get the ball, right? And so really what was eventually going to take them apart is the first time that Stringer actually had his own thoughts, his own mechanisms, his own ways to view things because he was going to completely move across purposes to Avon because those two guys are wired different. Though, like Even back in the day, like Avon says to Stringer, yo, just dream with me. Dream with me. Avon's wants to be in an emotional moment. And Stringer looks at him and is like, yo, we don't have to dream. Like, just to let you know, we can have all of this for real. Come out of your head, get back into reality. Those two guys are wired different. It was a matter of time before things went to where yeah, they Yeah, I think they sometimes went. in friendships, it's good 
that you have friends that are opposites from you. But I think with all friends that you have, you have you can be different, but you have to be like-minded. The biggest problem with Stringer and Avon, they were not like-minded. And um, I think what got exposed, the more we learned about their friendship, the more that we saw them together, is that their differences were actually things that could tear them apart. And that's not the case for a lot of friendships. But in this case, it was. It's like they yeah. were so, to your point, Van, um, that they were so fundamentally different that at some point this shit wasn't going to work. This was not one of those friendships that was actually built to last because the only thing that was holding them together, I think, was business success. So the moment they didn't have as much success and they had to deal with some real shit in their friendship, I think they were just honestly kind of headed for trouble. So... Uh, I guess when we think about breakups across the wire and Van and I, we did this, I think, either the last episode or or somewhere in the recent episodes of Way Down in the Hole. Um, You had made the comparison, Van, about how Herc and Carver was like a really hurtful breakup. And I saw people online giving you some shit about it. It was Young Guru. Shout out to Young Guru. Young Guru, hip hop legend, who really, really got at me about me saying that Herc and Carver was the saddest breakup. I still think it's the saddest breakup. Bill, you have any thoughts on that? I like what you said about the different kind of philosophies because I think that's what this is all about. Hurricane Carver, I, I actually agree because that just felt like a buddy cop movie within the show, right? And when it falls apart, yeah. it was kind of more disarming. I think the Stringer-Avon thing, you knew it was headed to the wrong place because they just cared about different things. Stringer was a means to an end. They're doing all this stuff. They're getting their hands dirty because it's going to lead to all of these things. And Avon saw it the same way Marlo saw it. Like to him, it's like the action was the streets. That's what he cared about. He cared about owning the corners and having power. He didn't care about like, oh, look at our real estate portfolio. So (laughs) I think at that point, it was never going to work. I just thought of something as we were talking though. I was saying by by the decade, these things were the, these close friendships that fall apart. So if Insecure ends with Molly shooting Issa... That, that could be oh. that could be the legacy of this, right? If there's an actual murder to end the show and it becomes the Nino oh. Nino G Money moment of insecure. I think that's how the show has to end. Yeah, well, but but to your point though, I mean, it's 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 minus the the drugs, violence, and all those other things. We see the same thing in that is that, but that was a little different because you saw people kind of, you saw them evolve in different ways. But I think from the beginning, right. this is who Avon and Stringer were from the time yeah. Stringer is still in badminton sets. Like this is what it has always been about. The difference I think between this breakup versus other ones we've seen in The Wire, even Herc and Carver, I didn't feel sad that they broke up. There was me, no sadness me, here. Like it was just kind of like, it was an inevitability which is different, right? There is other breakups that you feel, we mentioned like some of them, you know, that happened with whether it be Sherrod and Bubs, like other ones that will happen later on that we'll get to that were way more emotional than this one. This was not emotional. I'll tell you why, because it was the breakup of a bad marriage. And like when when a bad marriage breaks up, there's a little bit of relief after a while. If you ever had your friends, whatever, they can't, they don't do nothing but fight. All they doing, hey man, can I come crash on your couch? Hey dog, why don't you just leave her? Like I'm getting, you know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm, I'm getting sick of it. But like in terms of Hurricane Carver, that's different. That's a marriage that you think is happy. And all of a sudden, your boy calls and tells you, this may or may not have happened. Yo, I came home and there was some dude in the closet. Then you're like, damn, she didn't do you like that, did she? Then you're actually shocked and sad because you didn't see it coming. And with Hurricane Carver, you kind of didn't see it coming. You know what I mean? They're very careful. As soon as Avon gets out of jail, Every scene he's with Stringer, there's some sort of discomfort yeah. in some way at Absolutely. some point during this scene. 
and you could see them sizing each other up and you could see, you can almost feel Stringer's wheels turning like, man, it was kind of actually easier when he was in jail. I was doing whatever the fuck I wanted. Like, <laughs> kind of sucks that this guy's back. Yeah, it's like now, now all of a sudden right. I'm, I'm fighting with Marlo. I don't, I don't want any part of this, but I just think it's so brilliantly written. I, I think from the moment he gets out of jail all the way through season four is probably my favorite stretch of any television show. I, mm. I just think every choice that gets made in this episode, there's so many other good little moments. Like when McNulty goes to dinner and he realizes that the conciliary for, for the mayor is Love like using that. him. Right. Just pumping him for information. I did hear a crazy Baltimore story, you know, through the rumor mill of Washington. Really? Some renegade police commander takes it on himself to, uh, I don't know, legalized drugs in the precinct. Someone, I think it's Colvin. You know him? No, I can't say that I do. Still, I think it's funny that some uh, water cooler talker down in DC knows any Baltimore cop's name. I was just wondering. Listen, I'm. Uh... You leaving? Yeah, I think so. It's this rare, honest moment for McNulty where he's like, eh, fuck this. Like, he actually turns down sex. He's yeah. going to have free sex, right? <laughs> and he's like, no, nah, it's not worth it. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to do this. I, I just think they really hit their stride in every conceivable way. They've figured out the characters completely. They figured out how to intersect the plots. Every single piece of it made sense. I, I think it's an incredible achievement. Yeah, and even the smallest things are, like, intentional, too. It, it, that scene with McNulty, you know what was really, what struck me about that one is that, you know, they have been setting this up all season, that McNulty is just out of his league with her, right? That he is not, honestly, intellectually on her level to be able to have any kind of sustainable relationship. McNulty may not, you know, read the Washington Post back and forth or be up on all the political gossip and political maneuverings as she is. But the one thing he is, is street smart. And you know what? He knows a liar when he sees one. And as soon as she just mm -hmm. out of the a blue... Bullshitter. Yeah. yeah, he knows it. He could detect yeah. bullshit. And in that moment, it served him way better than knowing, um, you know, who was on the cover of The Atlantic or anything like that. So it, I, I appreciated it for that. But Van, you were going to say something didn't mean to cut you off. No, you're absolutely right about that. He's kind of... My favorite scene from this episode, though, is one that I feel like they snuck in here when Cuddy asked Avon for the money to start the boxing thing, right? To get the new equipment for the kids. How much money are you talking about? 10,000. <laughs> <laughs> you can go through all that for 10,000? Man, Slim, go get him 15,000 cash, man. Avon is so unbelievably benevolent in that scene. He is such a great fucking guy. Cuddy, Cuddy comes in there, and remember now, like, Cuddy comes in there, it's a lot for Cuddy to ask for help. Anytime in the past Cuddy's asked anybody for help, he was asking them for help at the end of the Snub Nose 38, right? He goes in there, and, like, like the scene sets Avon up to be the gangster gentleman that we all know. Avon does terrible things as well. He kills witnesses. He does all of these things. But there's this hope in Avon that had he had a different situation, that maybe he might have been a different guy. With Marlo, spawn of Satan, 666 on the goddamn forehead, that's who he is. Avon, though, you can imagine a world where Avon was a two-guard 
for the University of Maryland in College Park. You can imagine that world. Oh, what you need? 10000 You want all that 10000 Slim, give them 15000 cash. Take care of these little guys. That plus the fact that Avon gave Cuddy no smoke when he got out of the game. It, 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 it pantomimes to you that if Avon could have been something different, that he would have been something different. Yeah, I would say that's even a bigger scene. Cause that's when you that's when you're like, ah, I kinda like Avon. I know I know he's chug <laughs> right. there, but good guy. <laughs> you know, he, he's like, Oh, you paid your debt, I want to look out for you. And that so it's not surprising when he gives them the money for the boxing stuff. But yeah, if he's doing that with Stringer, right. Stringer's looking at it like, well, what kind of angle do I get of this? Well, could that could there be a newspaper story about me like back in this spot? You know, and, and he's just goes immediately narcissistic. Avon's a decent guy, kind of. I'm not so certain Stringer wouldn't have had Cuddy <laughs> killed. You come in here asking for ten thousand dollars? What you want the ten thousand? You got you wearing a wire? Hey, Slim, take his clothes off. Man, he might have had him. Ki- he might have had him killed when he asked to get out the game. Were well, you kidding? Uh, but I, right. but, the, but that's why I think their breakup and really ultimately Stringer's death. Why it, sadness is not what comes to mind. You just sort of are bummed because it was a, a charismatic character. But across the the seasons of of the Wire, like how many? How many heartfelt moments does Stringer actually have? I can't think of one right now. One where you've seen some glimpse that there's a little bit more there. Even Weebay, who had murdered like 9 million people, has fish. Even Weebay has something. You're like, you know, yeah, he's a killer. He's a goon, but he loves fish. All right? You're like, all right, you can see that. So I have to go after this, but this is Jamel's anti-Stringer stuff. As I said, it's hurtful. Um... (laughs) It hurts my feelings. It continues to hurt my feelings. This is the best case for for what you're saying. He has no moments in the entire show that would make you think he's a good guy. Even None. even um, when does he have, he starts having sex with D'Angelo's girlfriend, and like as soon as he goes to jail, like every single move he makes is basically saying I'm I'm not a good guy. So when he finally gets gunned down, you feel like he deserved it. I just thought he was good TV. I mean, I, I just liked him selfishly as a TV consumer. I'm like, this guy's on the screen I'm watching. And he was clearly overqualified to even be on the show. Like, the guy's an A-list actor, you know? And, and we were catching him yeah. on the rise at this great point in his career. But um, so anyway, Van and I are pro stringer. You get outvoted two to one. <laughs> pro stringer. <laughs> it's all right. And two so to one. Thank you for having me on because I had a really good time. Yeah, thanks, And Bill, I love the show. Us. Keep it going. Please, Bill. Uh, we, we will. Thank you for everything right. and appreciate your insight. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's... it's. Uh, I, I realize that people will think that my hatred of the character means that I didn't like the acting. Like, the Bill's right. Like, Idris Elba was amazing in this. And I think the testament of my hatred is is really a tribute to how amazing that he was. Is like, he had me like, man, fuck this dude. And you know how hard that is for, right. especially when this series came out, you know, we're talking about in the in the, in the 2000s or whatever, um, where in terms of, at least looks-wise, you didn't see many Idris Elba's walking around. You know how hard it is to hate somebody who's fine, man? That's hard, okay? I mean, I'm a man, so it's something we don't do. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, bro, I mean, seriously, I mean, I didn't, but brothers were sending around a Twitter clip of Tommy Lauren talking about, look how, like, so that shows you, like, we have no, because that's the bottom of the barrel. Like, that shows you we have none, no screws. None whatsoever. You know what I'm saying? 
but I'm not with that just to put it on the blueprint. But no, I'm, I'm not used to what you're talking about. So, yeah, I get it. it must be pretty hard. <laughs> it, 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 was a, it was a hard road for sure. Uh, let's go through some of the other uh, great scenes in this episode that you and I liked. Uh, you mentioned the Cuddy scene. I, too, had that one down. Uh, what are some other scenes that you felt like were really good in this episode? Avon and Brother Muzon. Uh, Avon looks super yes, cool. Yes, love that scene. Uh, you look healthy. Like, guess what? <laughs> I, I love that. Everybody else is afraid of you to a degree. Hi, it's me, Avon Barstow. I'm sure we have some things to talk about, but I'm the coolest nigga in the world. So go ahead and talk. Uh, yeah, and not only that, he dismisses everybody else in the barbershop. Like, he's like, yeah, I know you're a killer, all that. That's good. I'm not scared. And guess what? I don't even need protection. I don't need anybody else here. Let's talk. Yeah, break out. Uh, Omar and Brother Muzon at the beginning of the episode, which is also one of my favorite scenes, but also a kind of we love this show butt moment. Mm, why you say that? Because I just don't know how many Wild West showdowns like that go down in real life. Like, I'm going to yeah. point my gun at you. think they tried it a little slow. too hard, maybe? That's a little bit of a... That one is more... That's the one of the more TV showy moments in the wild. It's fantastic. When they're talking about the calibers of their gun and they're going back, that's a movie straight out of a Sergio Leone uh, film right there. And Jimmy's date just kind of shows you basically what you were saying earlier, the fact that McNulty is not as book smart as she is, but he's cunning. He's an animal. He's used to being in the jungle and in a place where you make one world move and you die. So those were some of the other scenes that I loved in addition to the ones that we've already talked about. Another scene that I loved was when Stringer was trying to get Slim Charles to put a hit out on Clay Oh, oh how could I forget? I'm sorry. Yeah. I, oh, Jamel, I apologize. That The beginning of that scene is my favorite Favorite line in the history of the wire. You need a dead jackal type motherfucker basically to do some shit like that, not a rumble tumble nigga like Slim. That's one of my favorite lines. I am so sorry. You are completely right, Jamel. Although the best line in that entire scene between Slim and, and Stringer and then eventually Slim, Stringer, and Avon is when Avon tells him, what I tell you about playing them fucking away games? They saw your ghetto ass coming from miles away, nigga. Yeah, I mean, that was a great scene where he just rubbed Stringer's face in it just a little bit more to say, you think you so damn smarter than everybody else and you got took by these dudes trying to run game on their turf. Um, and much as the same as I said before, when Levy tells Stringer and he's laughing at him that he's been had, uh, the look, uh, the, the anger that Stringer has in those moments because uh, he knows that there's really even though he's mad, there's really nothing he could do. Much like Slim Charles was trying to tell him. It's like, man, he's like, I ain't Lee Harvey Oswald. What the fuck what you, you think this is? Think <laughs> like, I'm, in I'm the just fucking CIA. senator? I'm in the CIA? Like, what are you talking about? Like, What, <laughs> what are you talking about? Right. Like, no, I, I can't just put a hit out on, on, on a senator, right? Like, that's, right. there's no scenario where that works out and I get away with it. But, you know, Levy, because he's a racist, um, I think he enjoys telling Stringer that he got had because... You know, I'm sure Stringer always came off to him as somebody who thought he was a little bit smarter than his position would suggest. Like, oh, oh, you thought you was one of the smart ones. Huh? Well, let me tell you how unsmart your dumb ass was. And so uh, I, it just seems like Levy, to be his attorney, is taking an enormous amount of gratification into telling him uh, that he indeed was had. Um, another kind of smaller scene that I like that was uh, in the world of Cuddy is when Justin turns a corner 
And he's getting pummeled by a kid that's half his size. And he's just like beating him down and going at it. And he continues to just go back out there and get back out in the ring. And Cut even tells him like, hey, basically what you lack in mechanics and actually, oh, I don't know, knowing how to box, you got heart. Yeah. And considering where their relationship started with Cuddy insulting him and then humbling himself and going back to get Justin's attention. And now he's teaching him and they're, they have, they've built a bond. I thought... That was probably maybe the most hopeful thing that happens in this entire season. For sure, yeah. Is that. I mean, Cuddy's story, period, is one of redemption that didn't look so redeemable um, for most of this season. And then finally, in the last few episodes, it's like he finds his place. And he's in a position where he can make uh, a real impact. So, yeah, those were those are some of my favorite scenes. Um, now let's move on to what aged the best? What aged the best for you, Van? To me, one huge thing that aged the best in this episode is people growing apart. It's yeah. always going to happen. You have to sort of compartmentalize people in order not to grow apart. What I mean is if you ask for everything from everybody that you grow up with, you'll definitely grow apart. But see, I have in my crew, my basketball homies, I have my political homies, I have all of that, right? So you compartmentalize people, you always have something you guys can relate to. Like Avon and Stringer are all up in each other's shit, and that doesn't work. So the fact that they grew apart, especially when they were both supposed to be, and it always happens, after you get your first hit record, after you, be as big as you got, that's when it comes, the, the, the edict. More money, more problems. That has aged the best. You see guys break up when they get to the top of the mountaintop, and that's what happened with Avon and Stringer. So that ages best, and that will always age well as long as we have society. I mean, if you want to compare it to the music business, which you you obviously were, is that, you know, that's why I'm so hooked on Unsung. Like, if Unsung is on, I'm not leaving the couch. Now, and, and even though every story is basically the same when the it comes exact to a group. Same, yeah. It's the exact same. It's like... <laughs> They reached the height of their success. And then it was like, somebody gets to thinking that they deserve more than they have. Somebody gets to thinking that they're being underappreciated. And it is like, boom, the group is like fucking over with. And they can never go on to duplicate the same success that they experienced together. And that also was part of Stringer and Avon's story is that separately, they were never quite right. You know, as much as uh, Stringer was trying to kind of find his way in the business world on his own and do his own thing, it, it didn't It didn't really work out. Is that they kind of needed each other's different personality traits to make their thing work, even though they were wired differently. Like, Stringer needed Avon's street smarts to help him watch his back and see things from a different 10,000-foot view. Avon needed Stringer because he's a big-picture thinker. Right. And it's not just about... Um, the small stuff uh, or the petty stuff or the ego stuff, you know, reputation, corners, and handle, real estate. To handle the day-to-day. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's just, um, the, here's the odd thing. And tell me what you think about this. Given their personality traits, would the Barksdale organization have been better if their roles were switched? Great question. Probably. Yeah, because Stringer's big picture, which is what you want the boss to be, Right. Avon on a day-to-day tip. It's better than with people. Right. And he's better in the streets. Yeah. So probably, probably. But the question is, would they have been able to build the necessary, like Stringer's not a wartime guy. 
So in order for them to build everything up, would they have been able to take the corners if not for Avon being a soldier? But it's a fantastic question, though. Yeah. I, well, I'll say this. Long run, um, maybe after they get out of sort of the war element of this, like, I don't think that's Stringer's strong suit, you know, about going to war and all that, even though he clearly has some gangster up in him. But I do think that once their business turned a particular corner, that Stringer was the one that could obviously guide them into a legitimate life where they did not have to watch their backs nearly as much as they did as long as they maintained some kind of street connection. For me, what aged the best in this episode, the concept of a law and order administration. Because <laughs> that is what, you know, Royce is talking so much and that, that this whole issue about Amsterdam is about appearing tough. It's not even about, I mean, this is what this this entire police department or police departments everywhere is built upon is the idea of looking like you're doing something and not even making any real change or headway into some of these problems that are persistent in the in the society. They feel like they can make people uh, feel as if they're safe just by doing these rip and runs and the, all these things that only show your quote unquote exacting law and order when in reality is that you're just not even making a dent in a problem or even addressing what the systemic issues are. So I thought uh, Royce's attitude, though, he's trying to figure out a way to keep Amsterdam going. But the reason why he spends way too much time thinking about how to keep it going is because he's still caught up on this idea of looking tough as opposed to actually fixing the drug problem in Baltimore. So I thought that aged well, um, coupled with just the general inability to reimagine modern day policing. Cause uh, I guess I should have talked about this as a good scene. A good scene was when Bunny took Carcetti to that. that community me- meeting. Mm-hmm. And that right there was a complete masterclass about how policing needs to be reimagined. That residents will feel safer if they had a personal connection to the person who is in their neighborhood. Right. Um, so Uh, Those things, especially in light of everything we're talking about today, aged incredibly well. In terms of what aged the worst, did you have anything? Double hoop earrings. (laughs) Stringer's bodyguard, when they're walking in, doesn't just have double hoop earrings. He has double hoop earrings and a ponytail. Fucking horrible. No. Yeah. That's the bingo card of horrible right there. Bingo card of horrible. Double hoop earrings. If you got the one hoop earring, uh, 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 his airness, I'll let it go because you've been wearing it for a long time. Even though, brother, Mike, you got $2 billion, Mike. Mike, take that goddamn hoop earring out and get you some jeans that fit. We love you, Mike. But you too rich for this, bro. I'm not bullshitting you. <laughs> you too rich for this, dog. Like, this is what I have to remind y'all. He's from North Carolina. Okay? Look, no, no, but North Carolina of a certain era, like oh, okay. I know True. because he was kind of cool for so long because obviously he was a great player, but like at the end of the day, Mike Mike kind of country. He yeah. got a country. So a yeah, the hoops and the he, he could and fit the baggy jeans. A whole country in one leg of them pants. <laughs> give him up. But yeah, the hoop, And the fact that he's still doing it is like still amazing. doing it. He's doing it just to troll us now. But yeah, so the hoop earrings, I saw that like that age poorly right there. You don't see that. Now, well, age poorly for me, and I'm not even sure if it was ever a thing, but it just, as much as I love the boxing scenes with Cuddy, mostly from not because they're actually like good action scenes, but just um, what they represent. Yo, boxing and long tees? Like, yeah. 
Why they boxing in long tees? They like, didn't have no other clothes. It's not like, I, like I, I was looking at that like, too. I'm like, they gave him 15 grand, man. He can't get them kids some undershirts. I gotta be honest about that. Avon gave them the money, and I didn't see any new equipment in the next scene, man. Cutting. <laughs> I mean, it didn't look. It didn't look like they just got it out the wrapper. Right. Like maybe he got it like new used. Right. Yeah. So, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and I also wondered too when he gave Cuddy the fifteen grand, given the way his eyes widened, I was like, wonder how much Cuddy took off the top. You got to have an administration take, fee, right? You got at least take three. <laughs> at least three. Lots of good. File this away for later moments in this one. Were there some that you spotted? Uh, Johnny. Yeah. Yeah. Oof, man. Yeah, Johnny. That's a good one. Yeah, uh, Johnny in this one talking to Carve about he's, the fact that he's going to blast off and Johnny getting high and the whole thing. File it away, but don't put the file too deep because it's going to pay off real, real quick. I'd say uh, also in terms of paying off real, real quick, um, Stringer in general dropping that dime to Bunny Coven on, on Avon. One you still need to keep filed away despite how this episode ended. Also, Stringer's last words before he died. Follow that away, because you will hear that later. Mm. And as it's sooner rather than later. Now on to some trivia, which I'm very excited mm. about. So, uh, Wood Harris nor Idris Elba knew which one of them was going to die when they shot that balcony scene. They had no idea what was going to happen. They just knew from the dialogue that somebody was going to go, but they didn't know who that somebody actually was. And Idris Elba was really caught off guard by his character being killed. And as I explained earlier, when we had Bill on, um, as upset as he was, uh, he was more surprised, I think, than upset because the character had become quite popular and he just didn't see the rationale behind killing off a popular character, but he was not thinking about it the way that David Simon was, which is you can't become the whole show. Love you. Idris, but you can't become the whole show. Uh, that leads me to this. In the, the finality of Stringer Bell, of Omar and Muzan coming together to kill him, what they had written originally was that Omar or Brother Muzan was going to piss on Stringer Bell's dead body. Idris Elba was like, y'all got the wrong fucking one. Ain't nobody pissing on me for the scene. And David Simon told him, no, 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 they won't actually piss on you. They'll piss on... Um, uh, a, a, either a body double or like some kind of um, uh, doll or something that they'll they'll make up. And he was like, ain't nobody pissing on my double or my doll. He's <laughs> like, I still ain't having it. Uh, and he just felt like it was overkill. So he was really upset about the fact that they wanted him to go out like that. And Idris Elba says, and all the pieces matter, that was kind of one of the few moments in The Wire where he felt like they were trying to be too much like a TV show and not tell a good story. Because, like, in a TV show, that's some overkill shit that would happen. Like, guy's dead, piss on his dead body. Like, oh, Stringer, I had the last laugh. Ha ha. He thought it was too cliche. Personally, I think he just didn't want to get pissed on. You know what I'm saying? Probably not. And by the way, that would have been crazy for either one of those characters. It's not in their character to do something like that. Michael Potts, who plays uh, Brother Muzan, um, I think he brought that up as well. Like, it just... It's kind of not their code. Ed Bart Burns's argument was that that was why they wanted to do it as well, is to take them outside of their code to show how much killing Stringer meant to them. So interesting tidbit of information. I think I might have mentioned this before. Me and Idris Elba have the same manager, the amazing Arunde Garrett. And the story of Idris Elba's reaction to learning that his character was going to get killed is fucking amazing. Really? Any details you can share with us? I, I, I was trying to hit, I, I'll hit a run day and I'll tell it, I might tell it on a bonus episode. 
Okay. Uh, but the story, or, or for the season wrap, we do for the season wrap. For the season wrap, the the story about kind of how that went back and forth. Just to let you know, yeah, he was displeased. Yes. <laughs> now, and, and all the pieces matter because that's an oral history of the wire. They probably glossed it up a little bit. I mean, they, right. they make it known that he was upset about it. Right. But they probably don't have nearly as many good details and good tea as you do in terms of telling how upset Idris Elba was. So put that in your back pocket. Let Aranda give you the, the, the green light, hopefully, so we can get this tea about how he really felt. So there is your trivia. All right, man, we reached the moment of truth. I have to say, uh, where this is uh, episode 11, this is by far the, the toughest episode to decide who won this episode. Uh, and with that said, I'm going to put it on you. Who did you think won it? It's got to be String, man. It's, it's, How you win? Like, I, no, I'm just joking. It's Brother Muzon. <laughs> Brother Muzon. He got the revenge. He got his he got revenge. revenge. Brother Muzon and Brother Muzon came in. Every scene that he was in was highly, highly, highly relevant. And he's the one who 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 hit his target literally uh in this episode more than anything. Even down to the point of of how he got to Stringer. For me, the winner of this episode is it's me. I won this episode, man. You know why? Because I finally got the satisfaction one more time of seeing Stringer eat them damn bullets on fake-ass Jeff Bezos, on fake-ass downtown developer head-ass. Finally, he got what was coming to him. Uh, Fuck that dude. <laughs> That's who won. It was me. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta... <laughs> That was great. That was great. That was fucking amazing. <laughs> I gotta give you props on that one. That was dope. No, no, you 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 get your win. You get your I win. I get my win. That's you, right. You get your win because a black man was killed. Damn it. <laughs> Wait a minute. No, seriously. Are we trying to guilt trip me on that shit? I'm not. I'm not. That was the best I could do. That was the best I could do. That was amazing. I know. He, he, you tried. You tried right. to play the race card on me. Sorry, man. It's not going to work. Yeah. It's not going to work. It, how's it feel, Jamel? <laughs> this is a black life that doesn't matter, Van. It doesn't matter. Russell Stringer Bell. Oh, my God. <laughs> anyway, uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us for another episode of Way Down in the Hole. Big thanks to Bill Simmons for joining us to break down that balcony scene, which is one of the great scenes of this series and certainly of season three. We will be back soon. With episode 12. Final yeah. one, right? Final oh, one this man. season. Yeah. God, this one like really, really flew by. Yeah, Yeah, sure. big time. So we'll be back to conclude uh, this season three. It's been fun. And as always, guys, keep listening to us and keep watching The Wire. 